Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that your grace is indeed enough, that through faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins that you bestow kindness and mercy and grace to us. We do not deserve it, Lord, and yet you are so generous in this giving of grace, and we worship you for it. God, with that in mind, we pray as we turn our attention to Matthew 10 today that you would help us not only appreciate the nature of that grace all the more, but that you would be birthing within each of us uh, a burden and a weight for the nature of the eternal. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the past couple of weeks, we've been in this new series that we're calling Urgent, and we've been looking at our area or our area of the country, our community, and we've been considering the role that God gives Christians as ambassadors for him and how the Christians here in Northeast Ohio have a very unique responsibility that God could have chosen to put you anywhere in the world. And he could have chosen to place you anywhere in history, but that he has chosen to place you in this time and in this place with a purpose, the purpose of sharing the good news of reconciliation of God for all humans through the forgiveness of sins that Jesus Christ offers. And so we've entitled the series Urgent because we want to highlight the fact that this calling that God places on the lives of Christians is not something that we can delay. It's not something that we can put aside. The situation is dire. Immediate action is required. And yet, despite that reality, the immediate nature of this calling, it doesn't often feel to us all that urgent, does it? We go through our days without that sense of urgency that is demanded. And so to highlight the urgency of the situation, we've, we've tried to do a couple of different things. We've displayed some statistics for you, particularly with regard to the confusion around basic Christian beliefs in this area. We've shown that over half the population of this area of Northeast Ohio does not understand or believe in the core of the gospel that people are saved through faith alone, by God's grace alone, and that results in heaven. We've talked about the spatial dimensions of this, time and space, that this is the time and this is the place that God has placed you. And we've talked about the difference between having spiritual indifference about the eternal state of somebody versus having compassion about the eternal state of somebody. And we've asked you to start praying specifically for three people the Pray 3 initiative. Today, we are going to look at another reason why we don't sense urgency in the evangelistic task. There's another reason, or maybe a combination of reasons, and that is the fear of man and an inadequate fear of hell. Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says to his disciples, and do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. I want to ask you to grab a Bible with me and turn to Matthew chapter 10. 
Matthew chapter 10 is found on page 815 of the Pew Bible in front of you. And I want to just set the context for that specific verse that we're going to consider. Matthew 10, Jesus is sending his disciples out on a mission. They're supposed to share the gospel with the Jews in the region that they're in. And in many ways, for the disciples, this is their trial run. (laughs) Jesus knows that in a short while, he will be ascending to heaven, that he will leave them behind, that they will be God's mouthpiece to the nations. They will be the ambassadors. They will be the ones that will have to carry the good news forward. And yet, in carrying it forward, there'll be very real challenges and very real fear. And so that's where we pick up in Matthew chapter 10 as he encourages and exhorts them, starting at verse 16. He says this. He says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious about how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death. And father, his child, and children will, raise, will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you that you have not gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, well, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will be revealed or hidden that will, be, that will not be known. What I tell you in dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. For even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, for you are more of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. The fear of man. The picture that Jesus paints for his disciples, for these first Christians, for how they would be treated isn't a very good one. And if you were to take verses 16 through 25 and just truncate it down all into a very succinct list of the things that are going to happen to them, he's telling them that they would be attacked, sued, tried, flogged, demanded to speak, turned on by their families, persecuted, and even be put to death. And then 
he says, do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Instead, fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. It's interesting, isn't it? That those apostles who saw Jesus, who heard Jesus, who followed Jesus day in and day out, that those same ones would have the same general fear of people that we have? This fear of man is one of the leading reasons why Christians don't share the gospel with other people. Because they're afraid of how they will react or how they will act in response. And and maybe as you begin to think about that for yourself, does that apply to me? You might not want to call it or recognize it in the category of fear. (laughs) But when you peel back a couple layers, I'm guessing that fear plays a pretty significant part in this category. And so what do we fear when it comes to fearing other humans? Why don't we share the gospel? What are we afraid of? Well, I think number one, obviously, we're afraid of rejection and lack of approval. I don't want the ideas that I communicate to be rejected, and I don't want to be rejected personally. I want to be approved of by people I know and like, and I want people to like me. I think we're afraid of, number two, our reputation. I don't want to be seen as the judgmental one, or I don't want to be seen as the super spiritual one, or I don't want to be pigeonholed into that category of Bible thumper. Or on the other side, maybe I don't want to sound ignorant or weak to these people that I'm talking to, because we all know that the cultural message is that religion is for the weak. I think another thing that we're afraid of is we're afraid of losing the peace. We want to keep the peace, right? We want to keep the peace with our family, with our friends. And this, sharing the gospel of Jesus, could put your relationships at risk. It could change the dynamic of your family. We all know that keeping the peace is important, that polite company doesn't talk about certain things. We don't talk about politics. We don't talk about Religion, and we certainly don't talk about heaven or hell. Got to keep the peace. What else do we fear? Well, in a different degree to the apostles, I think we fear persecution. It won't look the same as maybe it does in Matthew chapter 10, but when we share the gospel of Jesus and there's a negative reaction, that could actually cost us something could cost us a business deal. It could cost us a relationship. It could cost us something at work. It really, the rubber really begins to meet the road when it costs us in our pocketbook. Persecution is something that does happen today, though subtle, and will increasingly happen even during our lifetime. The fear of people as it relates to following God, <laughs> this is a thread actually throughout the whole Bible. This is something that Christians or followers of God have dealt with since the beginning. And that's why in Proverbs 29, it says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts the Lord is safe. 1 Samuel 15, Saul confesses his sin to Samuel, and he says it was based on the fear of people. He says, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words 
because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. And in Acts chapter 5, we see that these same disciples that Jesus talks to in Matthew chapter 10 are taking his words to heart as they themselves are now the ambassadors, the mouthpiece for God to the nations, sharing the good news of Jesus with men and women and boys and girls that they come in contact with. And the persecution is starting to come and they stand up and the Peter and the other apostles say in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. (laughs) We fear them, but we need to obey him all the more. And so, when the fear of man is combined with what we talked about last week, when the fear of man is combined with spiritual indifference toward the eternal state of people we know, the result is evangelistic inactivity. Fear of man plus spiritual indifference equals we don't share the gospel. Because what difference does it make? But Jesus tells these disciples to make a value judgment. The temporary for the eternal. The comfort of self for the eternal glory of another person. A trust in God with regard to our human relationships and The result is that God will save some for an eternal relationship, trading the fear of temporary discomfort for a greater fear to be realized, the fear of hell itself. And in short, he's looking at the disciples and he's knowing what is about to happen to them and he can see it in their eyes. And he says, you are afraid of the wrong thing. Don't be afraid of what they're going to do to you. Be afraid of hell. Because it's infinitely worse. The fear of hell. We don't talk very much about hell anymore, do we? I would guess that the last time you even heard the word spoken was probably as a passing cuss word as someone was describing their displeasure with something. When was the last time you actually talked about hell or even considered it at any length or depth? Hell has become one of those taboo words in our society that you definitely are not supposed to talk about. You can talk about heaven Don't talk about hell. And I get it. I understand why. I don't like talking about hell. I don't like thinking about hell. And I can't imagine that many people do. But if we don't talk about hell, and we don't think about hell, we'll be tempted to minimize the severity of hell. (laughs) Or even worse, will let lesser fears of this life of temporary significance trump over greater fears. And those lesser fears will motivate our actions when there should be a greater fear that could be realized. Or even worse than that, if we don't talk about hell and if we don't think about hell, we might even be tempted to convince ourselves that hell isn't even real. 
but hell is real. And we could spend a great deal of time this morning talking about the way that the Old Testament and the New Testament describe the place of the dead or the place of judgment or the place of separation from God, the different words that are used to describe it, Hades and Sheol and Tartarus and Gehenna. But know this, Jesus spoke about hell and he warned Christians to take extreme measures to avoid hell. And he says even in Matthew 10 that a fear of hell should motivate evangelistic action among the redeemed toward those who are lost. Jesus describes the end of all things at this time when he will separate the believers in him, those who are found in him, from those who have not believed in him. He refers to them as sheep, the believers, and goats as the unbelievers. And he gives this account in Matthew 25, 41. He says, Then he will say to those on his left, the unbelievers, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And he concludes in verse 46, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Hell is real. And hell is the result of judgment for our sins. There's no other reason for hell other than that a holy God cannot abide sinful humanity in his existence or in his presence in all of eternity. The justice of God must be satisfied because sin itself cuts against every fiber and core of who the person of God actually is. And his holiness. And so some of us will hear that and will say, God's justice must be satisfied, but can't a loving, all powerful God just simply overlook his justice and allow sinners into heaven? But, loved ones, if that's you today, and if you're thinking that way, I'm guessing that you haven't thought this one all the way through to its logical end. Because certainly you don't want God to set aside his justice completely. Do you? I mean, we have a feeling of injustice if we have to wait in a line at the grocery market for 10 minutes. We have a sense of injustice that if we have our car repaired and the next week it breaks again, this is, this is unjust. We cry, where is the justice when our property rights are trampled or our taxes are raised? You certainly don't want God to overlook his justice for rapists and mass murderers and sex traffickers, do you? You want justice. (laughs) And you want it right now. The problem is that when it comes to God and his justice, you don't want him to completely put it aside. But rather, you would have him put his justice aside selectively. God can set aside his justice when it comes to me or people that I love or people who have committed the lesser sins. Well, surely God should put aside his justice for them. But God's justice is not comparative. God's justice is consistent. 
And there's another side of this that we probably haven't thought, thought through completely, and that is if we say by this logic that God should overlook his justice and let, and, and let some sinners into heaven, even if selectively, well, how much sin should God let into heaven? How much should he let in? 15%? That's a lot. That could do some maybe eternal damage. How about 5%? Is 5% enough to mitigate the risk? No. How about 0.5% or maybe 0.05%? How much sin should God let into heaven? Well, the answer must be zero. (laughs) The Olympic athlete is disqualified from the games if even a trace element of a banned substance is found in their system. There's no recourse, no opportunity to complain. They are dismissed. If the substance is there, they have no right to protest. When you give blood... You must be completely free and clear of certain viruses, like the HIV virus. Nobody comes to the blood bank and says, my blood is mostly HIV free. I only have a little bit in there. And so that's okay, right? You can still use it. No, the answer is zero. (laughs) You can't use it. That's the same in our relationship with God. That there's no comparative measure. There's only one standard. And the standard is himself. His righteousness. Complete perfection. And that the person who will avoid judgment must be deemed completely free from sin. And this is the good news of the gospel. That in the coming of Jesus, there was one who was completely free from sin. And that when you put your faith in him, he takes your sin as his own and he gives you his perfection, his righteousness as your own. And so when the judgment comes, you will stand completely free from sin before your heavenly father and he will welcome you in. But for the one who does not have that righteous standing, The day of judgment will be a terrible day. Jesus says in Matthew 12, 36, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word that they speak. It's not just the big stuff. It's all of the stuff. And Revelation chapter 20 gives us a picture of what this judgment day will look like as the great white throne judgment. It says this. It says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead and who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, 
This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Hell is real. Hell is the result of judgment for our sin, and that leads us to our third observation about hell, and that is hell is eternal torment. The biblical concept of hell is consistent, and it speaks for itself and its severity. Hell is not a place where all the fun people from earth go to have an eternal party. Hell is not the place where you'll hook up with your buddies. Hell is not the place where Satan is in charge. In fact, he has the same plight as sinful humans do in hell. In short, hell will be the worst possible place that you can imagine. In the Bible, hell is called the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Gnash your teeth for four seconds and see how it feels. Hell is called in Matthew 13, the fiery furnace. It's called the unquenchable fire in Isaiah 66 and Matthew 3. It's called the outer darkness in Matthew 22. And perhaps the most vivid picture of the eternal torment of hell is found in Revelation chapter 14. We see a picture of the angels of God roaming the earth, proclaiming the good news of the gospel one last time before the impending judgment comes. And it says in verse 9 that another angel, a third followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And this description of hell led Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher, to exclaim that there is a real fire in hell. As truly as you have a real body, a fire exactly like that which we have on earth, except this. It will not consume you, though it will torture you. You have seen asbestos lying amid the red-hot coals, but not consumed. So your body will be prepared by God in such a way that it will burn forever without being consumed, with your nerves laid raw by searing flame, yet never desensitized for all of its raging fury, and asteroid smoke of sulfurous fumes searing your lungs and choking your breath. You will cry out for mercy of death, but, shall, but it shall never, never, never come. This is why Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body. Rather, fear 
him who can destroy both the body and soul in hell. So let me ask you a question. Are you sure that you aren't going to hell? Because please, please don't sit here today and be like the 85% of people in Northeast Ohio who associate themselves loosely with Christianity but have confusion and a lack of certainty when it comes to their personal relationship with God. Please don't risk eternity out of some sort of self-assuredness or pride. Don't risk eternity out of a fear of man. And if you're here today and you're not sure if you're going to heaven or if you're going to hell, then the answer for you is to very simply throw yourself at the mercy of God and say, woe is me, a sinner who deserves such judgment as this, but I don't want it. I don't want hell. Save me. Please forgive me. And if you put your trust in Jesus, to forgive you of your sins and to save you, then you will indeed be saved. The good news of the gospel is that you don't have to stand before God at the judgment day worrying about what is going to (laughs) happen. You don't have to worry about the trap door falling through the, and you falling through the floor to the dark place. That you can stand before God someday and he will look at you and see the perfection of his very own son and he will grant you eternal life. But you have to decide where to put your trust, where to surrender your desires to whom you will give your life. And so Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, after he gives them this warning, he finishes the section in verse 32. He says, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who's in heaven. He's referring to judgment day. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. What does God want? We've been asking the question over the last couple weeks, what does God want? And we see in 1 Timothy chapter 2, this is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. In Ezekiel 33, what does God want? In verse 11, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure, no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. That the God of the universe, though satisfying his justice, is dispositionally oriented toward love and grace and mercy and salvation. And that he wants us to stand before him someday with our name written in the book of life. And for you who are already Christians, this should mean something to you. This means that when we pray and seek to approach our friends and our neighbors 
And when we look for and courageously take opportunities to talk about the gospel with them, that we know that this is out of a desire of what God already wants. And we also know, on the other side, that we do so out of a position of fear for the judgment of hell. Our evangelistic endeavor is fueled by what God wants and by a fear of the eternal consequence of hell. And this fear calls us to speak and it calls us to pray and it calls us to engage because the picture we have of hell is so terrifying. And even though we live in a culture that says that we shouldn't speak or that we should be indifferent toward those uh, eternal state of other people or that we should be overly tolerant or that we're going to upset the status quo when gospel words are spoken, we can't possibly be silent because we know the reality of hell. And so we say to our friends, to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to our loved ones, to anybody that the Lord gives us opportunity in this time and in this place, I'm worried for your soul. Not because I have to be right, but because God himself is right. And I'm worried for your soul, not because I'm perfect, but because I know that God himself is perfect. And I'm worried for your soul. And even though I fear that when we say these things that our relationship will never, ever be the same again, I must confess, I don't want our relationship to be the same again. I want to be with you forever. I'm worried for your soul. Not because I want you to accept me, but because I want God to accept you. consequence of hell motivates the Christian to share the gospel. The consequence of hell motivates the Christian to share the gospel. Does that motivate you? Because I trust that in being reminded of the terrible nature of hell, And thinking about that in light of the people you know and seeing their faces that you will never think about them the same way again and that you will never think about hell the same way again. There was once a man in England named Charles Peace. Charles Peace was... A criminal. So his name was a bit ironic in that he was anything but a peaceful man. He was a robber. He was a contentious person. He was a brawler. He was violent. He respected neither the laws of God nor of men. And eventually the authorities caught up with him and he was tried and he was condemned to death by hanging at the Armley Jail in Leeds. And on the morning of his execution, a contingent of prison officials came and they took peace out of his cell and began to walk him on the death march toward the gallows. And among them was a sleepy prison chaplain whose job it was to prepare the condemned for the hereafter. And as the group began this solemn death march, 
he began mumbling and yawning his way through a series of unintelligible recitals. And suddenly he felt a tap on his shoulder. And he turned around and it was the condemned man, Mr. Peace, who asked him, what are you reading? The consolation of religion, he replied. Do you believe what you're reading? The prisoner asked. Well, yes, I guess I do, said the chaplain. And Charles Peace just stared at the chaplain, stunned in disbelief. Here he was going to his death, knowing that his earthly deeds had utterly condemned him before the judges of the earth and any judges in the afterlife. And here is this clergyman mouthing words about heaven and about hell as if it was a boring chore that he had to get through. And so he said to the man, Sir, I do not believe or share your faith, but if I did, if I believe what you say you believe, then although England were covered with broken glass from coast to coast, I would crawl the length and breadth of it on hand and knee to think the pain worthwhile just to save a single soul from this eternal hell of which you speak. The consequences of hell motivate the Christian to share the gospel. And I hope that they start motivating you. Let's pray together. Father, when we stop to pause and think about the eternal, we ask for forgiveness. That we are so, so short-sighted We pray that you would help us to see more clearly and to feel more acutely the weight of eternity upon us. Fathers, we think about our fears and particularly our fear of men. I pray that you would grow us out of this place of fear into a place of confidence, knowing what you want and aligning our own desires and actions with what you want. Father, we pray for the lost of this region. We do not want to see any of them perish without you. And we know that you've called us to a task. Help us to pray more diligently. Help us to see opportunities more clearly. Help us to engage consistently and fervently. Because as we see today, Everything is on the line. Father, we thank you for the gospel. And as we think about the eternal weight of judgment, we can't help but praise your holy name that you have seen in your favor to save some from this hell of which we speak. That you have taken men and women and boys and girls and bestowed upon them the righteousness of Jesus. That we attain to it only by faith. That you give it as a free gift. That you're gracious and merciful to us. And that 
you call us to yourself. You no longer stand in judgment, but that you stand as a loving father. We thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you for its reality applied to us. And we worship you now in it. In Jesus' name, amen.